Amen. He's got left, it looks like, from construction yesterday. I joked with Adam that we should, for all time's sake, preach a mask. But let me put this up so we're not distracted. It is good to be with you uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezra, the uh, book that we are working our way through. We started uh, chapter 3 last week. And we will, uh, Lord willing, finish chapter 3 this morning. I think it is important to note that last week I was about uh, roughly 15 minutes shorter than normal. So I'm going to pick up those 15 minutes this morning. I feel like they're owed to me. So um, buckle up. We do have a lot uh, in as we finish uh, from 6b, if you will, most specifically. Or Exodus 3.6 down to uh, the end of the chapter in verse 13. So, for the sake of uh, continuing from last week, let us just jump in. Let us read this morning, Ezra 3, 6 through 13. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, uh, Zerubbabel, uh, the son of Shelatil, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with the sons of his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel." And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, but many of the priests and Levites and the heads of of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though, the, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this morning. We thank you for a chance to gather as your people, Lord. We thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the word that has been sung. Thank you for the, the gathering that has uh, taken place this morning and for the other ways that we will continue to worship this morning. But as we come to your word, Lord, as we open it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move inside each one of us, that we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look at, uh, as we finish up chapter 3, there are three groups of people that I would like to point out. 
uh, and I have admitted to a couple that I'm not necessarily proud of some of these points, but they're going to help us gather through them. I may be forced some alliteration this morning. I do admit when I do that. Uh, but we have three groups this morning. The first is an unwitting world. The second is a united workforce. And thirdly, we're going to see an uplift, uplifting worshipers. So as we, as we look at this text this morning, as we see uh, before, really there's this gap in time from the end of uh, from kind of moving from verse 7 to verse 8. We see a gap in time. We're finishing up where we started last week in the beginning of 3 when the people of God, the people of Israel, they come back to Jerusalem. We know they've been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. We know that Cyrus has, has released them. They've gone. Uh, ultimately, it is the Lord who has stirred in Cyrus. It is the Lord who has stirred in the people to return. It is the Lord who has been stirring in all of those that we've been reading about. And so before uh, they start the rebuilding of the temple, it finishes in the end of verse 6 and verse 7, where it says that the foundation of the Lord has not yet been laid. And that's the emphasis this morning is the foundation of uh, the Lord, the work associated with it, the worship associated with it. And so but it says, so they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from the king of, from Cyrus, the king of Persia. So before we even get into the foundation, we see an unwitting world being used, that God's plan includes lost people. Sometimes we forget that, that God is using all sorts, all types throughout the world, not just today, uh, but throughout all of history, God uses all types. God's plan includes the lost. And so as he's about to embark and he's about to call his people to rebuild the temple, the second temple of the Lord, it's interesting to note that he is using the unwitting world, the unknowing world. They don't even know really what they're participating in. It is the Lord who is using them. Uh, the foundation that's about to be built by God's people is being funded by Gentiles. It's being funded by these pagan nations. It's being funded uh, to some degree by Babylon, who the Lord, as we've seen in chapter 1, sent out the people of God full of riches, full of all the resources they needed to return to make that four-month journey back. But now, as they are about to endeavor to rebuild the temple again, God is using the world around them. Uh, now, as we kind of talk about the rebuilding of the temple, and we see uh, this is the second temple of Solomon. We've been talking about that a little bit as we started Ezra. We'll get more into it uh, in the coming weeks. But this temple that is being rebuilt, uh, of course, we know the first temple is Solomon's temple. And this is the second temple. It's going to be, it'll come, it'll be known as Herod's temple ultimately. Uh, but right now, this is the, the temple of the Lord. They're about to rebuild. And the Lord is the one who is laying this ground where he's laying the foundation. And according to his ultimate wisdom, according to his plan, he is using all types, not just God's people, but the people of the world. And what he needs specifically are trees from Lebanon. He has to order materials, so to speak. And as one in the construction world, this is something we see even today. You can't build something without materials. And he wants very specific materials, just as he called for the first temple whenever Solomon's, uh, Solomon's temple was built. So we see there's a lot of similarities to the two temples. Uh, but he's specifically calling for these trees from Lebanon. This is not an easy task. You didn't just run down to the Tom Sanders of Jerusalem to go get materials. Uh, you had to order. Order, you, had to, you had to send out for these things. And this grant that we see 
in the end of verse 7, where it says, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, for us in our modern mindset, we see the word grant and we think government money, but that's not necessarily the case from this word that we see in verse 7. It is really that his authority, so God has stirred Cyrus's heart again uh, to, to give his authority, to give his approval for people to go into these other nations to take these trees, these, these cedar trees, and all the other materials that it's talking about to be used in God's temple. And so uh, we see the materials being gathered. It's no easy task, one, to secure them, or two, to bring them down to Jerusalem. This is not an easy ordeal. And so the original audience here, I believe they would have recalled the promises of God, ultimately, that we see written for us in Isaiah chapter 60. So go me real quick to Isaiah chapter 60. I gave you a break last week on flipping to uh, other parts of God's Word. I'm not going to give you a break this morning, so we're going to start in Isaiah 60 and verse 10. What Isaiah prophesies, prophesies before. He says, Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. So just, just think about that. You're in captivity. You're, you're reading this, this prophecy from, from Isaiah, and, and what you're hearing is that foreigners, this is Gentiles, these are people who are not part of the people of God, they're going to be a part of rebuilding this temple, rebuilding the city of the Lord and His temple. So they will build up your walls, and kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. So it is the Lord's doing. It's not Cyrus's doing. It's not those from, uh, from, from Tyre and Sidon. It's not their doing. It's the doing of the Lord by his favor. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. These trees that he's speaking of, these cedar trees, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, the beauty the, the, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So God wants this temple to be a certain way. He wants to look a certain way. He wants to be built a certain way. So he stirs in the hearts of all of those needed to make this happen. God uses the lost for his plans and purposes. He uses this unwitting world. Cyrus and Babylon both were unwitting worldly participants in God's plan. God uses whomever he chooses, whenever he chooses, however he chooses. And that's great encouragement to us today in 2023. That ultimately the Lord is in full control. We see this on display, not just in Ezra, we see it on display in all of God's word, that God is in control. That Cyrus and Babylon are unwitting worldly participants, Tyre and Sidon, that are mentioned several times throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, never in a positive light. But these nations are unwitting worldly participants in God's plan. They're being used. They're being used to bring about God's will. We see other unwitting worldly participants throughout Scripture. You can look at Joseph's brothers who intended evil, but the Lord used for good. And we walked through that years ago. 
We can see Pharaoh on display. We see Romans 9 where it just clearly speaks to us. It says, you know, Pharaoh, uh, that I will, I will do whatever I want to ultimately. I will use the things for noble purposes and other things for ennoble, ennoble purposes. This is the Lord using whatever players on the, the, the platform of the world as he sees fit. And I love, uh, go with me to Acts chapter 4 as we think about unwitting worldly participants in God's plan. Acts chapter 4 is probably one of the greatest displays of this. Acts 4, just a couple of verses in 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And so here he is. He's, he, he, is, he is proclaiming before these in Jerusalem here. But these are the folks who are against Jesus. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and some of Israel even. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, we see even in the cross, we see even in the acts against Jesus, the Lord is at work. It is still at the willful hand of people. But they're unwittingly being used in the purposes of God. Over just a few books to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting in verse 6. It says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. So they're unaware, they're unwitting. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glories. We just looked at it in Acts chapter 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so, again, we, just, we see that, that the, the world around us, they may be completely unaware of what's going on, completely unaware of the things of the Lord, as Paul says to the Corinthians. But God is fully aware, and God is using all of those whom He needs to bring about His purposes for His glory and our good. And He's doing the same thing in Ezra. He is working for the good of His people and the glory of His great name. And He does so through some unwitting worldly participants we see in Ezra chapter 3 and he does so even in our life today but not only do we see this group we see a second group we see this united workforce we see these willing hands and these willing hearts show up in verse 8 and so now we're fast forwarding to the next year it's been about six or seven months this is now in the second year so this is the second year from once they've come back from um, from captivity after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month. This is the month of Ziv in the Hebrew calendar. Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and brothers and Kedemil and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And so he gets into a little bit of the rebuilding work. He gets into a little bit of the construction, how it's organized. Although chapter 3 doesn't take a whole lot of time, 
with the work that is about to happen, it does give us a little insight here in verses 8 through 9. And it does so by saying that they are coming together as it's similar to what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. They've come together, they've gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And yet again, we see this unity there in verse 8 where all of them who had come to Jerusalem, not just some of them, not just, not just those who wanted to volunteer on, uh, on one Saturday, but all of them, it says in verse 8, their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. These are the people who are united together to build and to be a part of and to participate in the rebuilding of the temple of God. And this united workforce, if you will. So God's plan not only includes the lost, God's plan clearly, and should be obvious, includes His people. God's plan includes His people. Last week, we saw the importance and even the priority of worship. We saw the importance of unity and the priority of worship. And we see it again this morning, the importance, the priority, the emphasis of unity. We'll see it again in worship in just a moment. But it is essential the people of God gather there in Jerusalem and work together to rebuild the temple. Because they had to, right? The head is all about their strength and their ability. No, we know that's not the case. We know that it is the Lord who is stirring in them. It is the Lord who is providing for them. It is the Lord who is sustaining them. It is the Lord who is even organizing them. We see great organizational structure here in um, Ezra 3, 8, and 9. Impressive organizational structure, if you will, where it really lays out how they're, uh, how they're going to be supporting this work of the Lord. They didn't just roll up into Jerusalem and say, go to work. They did so with a plan. They gathered leaders together. And so we see there are ultimately kind of three things here that the people of God had that was needed to rebuild the temple. One, of course, they have the Lord. The Lord is the one who's stirring them and sustaining them. But also they have godly leaders. They have leadership here. They don't have just the Lord. They have their leadership uh, Zerubbabel, uh, who is the civic leader, as we said, we were introduced to him last week. He is the one who's kind of leaving a, leading, leading a more of a political way. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, i got to give credit to James. He bumped me last week and said, hey, you forgot to mention this about Zerubbabel. So let's go look at Zerubbabel, where he also shows up. He shows up in the New Testament. So how can you be in Ezra and the New Testament? You'll see. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, the genealogy of Jesus, one of his genealogies, one's in Matthew, one's in Luke. And it says after, this is verse 12 of Matthew 1, after the deportation to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatil, and Shelatil was the father of Zerubbabel. So here is Zerubbabel. He's not just this random guy in Ezra. He is part of the lineage and the genealogy of Jesus. And so it's, it's interesting to see that this, he shows back up and he is a part of the line of Christ, our Lord and Savior. So the leadership they have is godly leadership through Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Yeshua was more the priestly leader that we see. And so he is involved specifically when it comes to gathering these priests and the Levites to, uh, to be leaders. And so their leadership was, was essential. Now, it's also interesting to note that the, that the Levite, the priests here that are calling to kind of be, for lack of better words, project managers and supervisors in the rebuilding of the temple, they lowered the age. 
Uh, we've seen in two other occasions in the Old Testament uh, where they, they have a specific age for the Levite priest. Uh, it's as old as 30. There's also a time we see it at 25. And now they've reduced it even down further to 20. So they're bringing these 20-year-old uh, males into leadership positions to oversee the temple because they needed leadership. They had the Lord. They needed godly leadership to lead them. And so we see this well-organized system as they're planning to start the rebuilding of the temple. And then thirdly, not just the Lord and their leadership, but ultimately we see their unity, the unity they have to, to, to work together. Now, did all of these Hebrews agree? Of course they didn't. However, as we saw last week, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Ezra chapter 2, there are almost 50,000 people who've come back from captivity. You can't get 50 people. You can't get five. I live with five people. Even five of us who love each other can't agree on anything. So how can you get 49,842? I made that number up. Don't fact fact check me. It's 49,000 and some change. How can you get almost 50,000 people to agree on everything? You can't. It wasn't that they agreed on everything, but they agreed and were like-minded on what was important. They set their differences aside and focused on their common goal. Working together, they would rebuild the temple. And this is obviously, as we see, uh, the emphasis here in Ezra, in rebuilding the temple. Working together, they would start to restore the nation of Israel. Israel had still been a people, obviously, but they had not been the nation like they had been prior to captivity. And so now they will work together to start and restore the nation of Israel. They were working together so they would fulfill the prophecy of God. Go with me to Ezekiel 40 real quick. If you remember where Daniel is that we spent some time in, go just to the left of Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 40. I want to read these first five verses. Because Ezekiel 40, uh, the prophet here is talking about the temple that's going to be rebuilt. And then here in verse 40, or in chapter 40, the first few verses just kind of sets it up of what they would have been looking forward to and what they would have known to be true, the remnant, those who trust in the Lord. In the 25th year of our exile, so they're in exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which a structure like a city to the south. When he had brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze and with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. He was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel." And so we see that, that there is this prophecy uh, from Ezekiel to the people of God while they're in captivity that it will be rebuilt. The temple will, will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will be restored. And so they're working together to fulfill that prophetic word. They're working together to reestablish their connection to their ancestors. Because guess what had happened already? Their ancestors had built the first temple. So now they're joining them in that sort of work. They're also working together. As they worked together, they modeled how God's people could do great things in unity. That God's people can do great things in unity. As they gathered as one person to Jerusalem, as they all come together to work to whatever gifts they had and abilities they had and strengths they had, 
that God's people can do all sort of things through unity. Not just their own unity, but unity in the Lord. Their purposes aligned with God's. They were serving the Lord as they worked together. And finally, I think it's interesting to note as they worked together that they were showing fruit of repentance even from a prior generation. From the sins and the divisions of all the infighting that was true of Israel before exile. Before they went into exile, Israel was not in a healthy place. They were not unified as we see here in Ezra chapter 3. So we even see this hint of repentance as they are working together, serving together, and they're about to be worshiping together. This, these are the people of Israel. Unity and the workforce was not just about efficiency in rebuilding. You would think that would be the key, but this is not the emphasis of chapter 3, not even the emphasis of the temple being rebuilt. Unity means much more. And we see this imagery of verse 1 and the imagery of verse 8 as Israel coming together. That reminds us that God desires His people to be one. Now, we mentioned it in passing last week, but I want to turn to it this week. Go with me to John chapter 17 as we see the desire of God. What is God's desire when it comes to unity? Now, we could look at all kinds of passages in the New Testament. We looked at several last week when it comes to unity and oneness. But what is God's desire? This high priestly prayer in John 17, this beautiful, beautiful passage. But when you go to verse 20 and through 23, it's one of Focus on those for a quick moment where Jesus says, I do not ask for, ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So all of these who will look to Jesus and be saved, this is his desire for. And in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you have loved me. And so this idea of unity... It is, it is the desire of God. It's the desire of God for His people to be one, to ultimately be one with Christ, to be in alignment with Christ, to abide in Christ, to be with Christ, for Christ to dwell in them. This is the picture of unity that we get in Ezra 3. It's the picture that we know that Christ desires in us. The unity that we see in chapter 3 and how God's people have gathered and how they have worked together, it is encouraging for us today, this idea of of unity but lastly we also see uh, not just these this unwitting world and this united workforce but lastly we see uplifting worshipers uplifting worshipers they get real uplifting they get real loud here in just a minute and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the lord the priest in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. 
So we see this picture, the real emphasis here of chapter 3 ultimately is coming to this point right here, to the worship of God. And we talked about the priority of worship last week, but we see it on full display this morning as they as they're laying the foundation. The building really hasn't even started. They just are, they're putting these stones back in place. Now we believe a lot of the stones were there, so it wasn't a completely brand new foundation, but the foundation was in disarray. And so they brought they, they did all that was needed to restore the foundation of the temple so that it could be built. So just the foundation alone brought pure worship to the people of God. Have you ever been in that place on concrete day? You built a house? I mean, it's kind of exciting, but I don't think it's that exciting, right? I mean, it's a milestone in the, in the building of a structure. But again, this was not about the building. The building was the issue, but it wasn't the real issue. It wasn't really what people, the people of God were, were super excited about. They were excited about what God was doing and how he was, was, being, how he was fulfilling his word and how he was uh, sustaining them and keeping them, how he had brought them out of captivity. And, of course, the temple was a part of it. So the real emphasis here of chapter 3 is worship. The real emphasis of life, as we looked at last week, is worship for the believers. The first half of chapter 3 is about reinstituting and returning to this prescribed worship. We see this, and now they are returning to that. They have reinstituted some of the temple days. We see the Feast of Booths there in uh, in verse 4. But now it says they are reinstituting formal worship. We see that. It says, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And so they, they dressed the part. They put on all their guard. They, they get clothed in the way they should be clothed to worship the Lord as the priest of God, as the priest of his temple. So they get dressed accordingly. They get the trumpets. They get all the instruments so they can worship the Lord as they have been commanded to worship God by David and by Moses, which is ultimate by the Lord. So the first half is reinstituting and returning to prescribed worship. And the second half of chapter 3 that we see here is, is Israel rejoicing and worshiping in this formal, corporate, and genuine worship. We see that it's very genuine. Now it might help us a little bit, a little context, to know what their mindset, to what their worship looked like while in captivity. If there is only a way we can know that, and I'm glad there is, go with me to Psalm 137, the 137th Psalm. We get a little insight into their time in captivity. First six verses here, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So just kind of that setup right there. It brings us into their mindset, into how they're feeling, how, how they kind of experienced Babylon. They were there, but they were remembering Zion. They were remembering Jerusalem. They were remembering the temple of God. They were remembering how they worshiped as God's people. But now they're sitting by the waters of Babylon and they're weeping. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. So sometimes as we talk about the how God has stirred in Cyrus and how he used Babylon to, to send out the people of Israel, sometimes we may it may get lost on us that they were tormentors. They were their captors. They were not there to treat them well. So we see this in Psalm 137. 
And the psalmist says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So they're being told, Sing, Jew. Sing these songs of your people. And, they, and they're saying, How can we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign place? We're not in the holy city. We're not in Zion. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And so now they're out of captivity. They have been returned to Jerusalem. The temple is, the foundation has been reset. They have, uh, they have taken up occupancy of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. So you can imagine their worship you can imagine their joy you can imagine how they want to celebrate and now they get to do so as god has commanded them the priests are there in their vestments the the trumpets are being uh, played the cymbals are being hit all of these things are happening and so you can just only imagine the overwhelming emotions of the people of god gathered in that moment But now they have a song to sing. And honestly, we could spend a long time just on this second half of verse 11 that is found so often through the Old Testament. They didn't just gather to hoot and holler. They didn't just gather to play instruments. They gathered to sing of the goodness of God. And there in verse 11, they sang responsively, which we'll look at in just a moment, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel I have probably read those those words more this week than I have read any other part of Ezra 3 I mean I've said them over and over for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel I mean, really could camp out there for quite a while. Because God is good. And His steadfast love does endure forever towards Israel. Now, before we kind of unpack that just a little bit, some ways they would have sung this. It says, and they sang responsively. Not responsibly. Maybe they sang responsibly as well. But they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. So this word, it means a few different things. Here's your word of the day that you can write down. I may be mispronouncing it, but uh, antiphonal singing. And so what that means is, I saw some eyebrows go up, A-N-T-I-P-H-O-N-A-L, antiphonal singing. Antiphonal, thank you. I told you I mispronounced it. I was right. Antiphonal singing. So uh, those of you in the music world uh, probably know that term. Those like me don't know that term. This is new for me, Adam. And so alternating parts of the song sung between two choirs or two parts of the choir. So you have this sing-off, if you will. They would sing one part, the other part, the other group would sing back to them. And so there was this response going back and forth and this antiphonal singing. Also a call and response. A leader would maybe sing part of it And in the choir, the congregation would sing back to him. And so there was this call and there was a response back from the congregation. Often it was used for theological emphasis to reinforce certain words or certain phrases. They wanted to make sure the congregation 
dialed into that and that this is the part for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel as we'll see in just a moment this was really kind of the theme one of the major themes of the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament and so they want to emphasize that doctrine and also a connection to the past and so this is how they used to sing before captivity now it's reinstituted it's brought back they're able to worship as God has seen fit and we see it in Psalm 136. We're not going to read Psalm 136, but turn with me real quick to Psalm 136. And we see the emphasis here. This phrase, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. It can be found in Psalm 100, Psalm 106, Psalm 107, Psalm 117, Psalm 118. And you see it in Psalm 136. It's repeated after everything. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give, th- give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His love endures forever. And you can read the rest of Psalm 136, and you see it every, after every single phrase, after every single affirmation of God and who He is, for His steadfast love endures forever. This was in the heart of God's people. They knew this to be true, and now they get to worship with it. It's not a new song. You sit there in the congregation, sometimes it's a new song, and you may be like me, maybe just humming or maybe just butchering it because you don't care. They knew this song. They knew it well. They knew these words. It was a part of their heart as the remnant of God, as the remnant of the people of God, those who were continuing to look to and trust the Lord. They knew God was good. They knew His steadfast love endured forever towards them. True Israel. God is good. And that's not just a slogan. It's not just a saying. God is good. Everything about God is good. All that he does is good for his glory and the good of his people. As we see in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. We know that his love is steadfast. It is strong, unwavering, and it is solidified in Christ. We know that his love lasts forever. There is no end to his love. It began for us as people before the foundations of the world we see in Scripture, and it will last eternally. God didn't start loving you when you became lovable, because guess what? You're not lovable. Well, you don't know what my mama said to me. She doesn't know your real heart. So even while we were unlovable, Christ loved us so much that He died for us. And He loved us since before the foundations of the world, when He chose us in Christ, and He will love us for all eternity. But oftentimes we don't see those last two words, toward Israel. For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now I could stay here for a while, but I'll be brief. Israel can be a confusing thing, especially for modern readers and modern believers and those in the world it can really be more than three things but three things that we often confuse israel we see israel especially in the old testament all the people of god the israelites can be known as israel we see modern day israel the nation state of israel 
that we say is Israel, but it's not true Israel. The Israel, the only Israel that really matters is true Israel. And we see, especially Paul spells it out for us. He says true Israel is the remnant. True Israel are those who have looked to and trusted Christ. Just because you were genealogically from, from Abraham doesn't mean anything. But only those who are, have the faith of Abraham, only those who have placed their faith and hope in the person of Jesus Christ, that is true Israel. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever towards all of those who are in Christ. For all of those who have looked to Jesus. That is true Israel. And we see it really spelled out in Romans. So we don't have time to, to unpack that this morning. But it's important to remember His love is not for a nation state. His love is not for all the Israelites. And the way that He loves true Israel. The remnant. Those who have looked to Him in faith and repentance. His love is set on true Israel. And nothing will cause him to waver. For it is steadfast, it is strong, it is unwavering, because it is ultimately found in the person of Christ. All the praise of God's people, they culminate in this great shout. So we can see, we can see how excited they would be, right? We can see just how, how much energy is in the room, so to speak. As they are gathered together, as there's 50,000, maybe more than 50,000 now, as they have maybe have um, brought some other folks in since they've returned to, uh, to Jerusalem, but at least 50,000 people have gathered and they're worshiping God in a way they've not been able to worship since before captivity. Everybody's dressed up. The music is great. But they're there to worship the Lord. It says, all the people shouted with a great shout. When they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. When many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted, shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So there are ultimately two groups of people here who are making all this ruckus. There's only two, there's two groups of people who are making this loud noise. And one is the group that we've talked most about already, those who are they were excited. They are full of, of the joy of the Lord. The foundation has been laid. They've heard all the stories of, of, of Jerusalem and the temple of God. But they've never been to the temple of God. They, they were born in captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. So the vast majority of this 50,000 people fall into that first category. They are, they are just excited and they are shouting. And they are overwhelmed. They are full of joy and they are praising God. This is the majority of Israel celebrating and praising the Lord. But you also have this older generation. These who they had been to Jerusalem before. They were born in Jerusalem or a surrounding town. And they went as a kid. Maybe, maybe they're 90 years old now. So maybe up until 20 years old. Maybe they're like 78. As an 8-year-old, they had been in Jerusalem and been worshiping the temple of the Lord. And they knew all the things about Zion. 
And so when they're in this same place and they're experiencing the same thing that this younger generation is experiencing, their response is a little bit different. Their response is a little bit different. It says, they are weeping with a loud voice. It says, but many of the priests and Levites, the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted, though many shouted aloud for joy. So why? Why would they be weeping with a loud voice? Why wouldn't they have the same, uh, the same emotional response as these younger people, as the majority of the people there? Why would you have this group that were weeping? Because they had seen the former glory days of the temple. And this new one would not be the same. And they knew that. They knew that it would not be the same. And we know, fast forward, we know you can, you can see uh, the details of the temple. It would ultimately be a smaller temple. It would be less grand than Solomon's temple. The sacred fire that remained lit in Solomon's temple would not be found in this one. This temple did not contain the ark of the Lord. The ark is, is, no, is, is no longer present. And inside the, the ark of the Lord was the tablets of Moses, the pots of manna, the staff of Aaron. So all of these things they looked to and found hope in and reminded of God's presence and provision in these moments are not going to be in this temple. So it's not the same temple. Now, is it a, is it a, are there tears of disappointment? I don't think we can go that far. Because they know the Lord has brought them out of captivity. They lived all through captivity. From day one to the exit, they were there. So they saw God's provision while in captivity. They saw it coming out of captivity. They see God doing what he prophesied that he would do. So they weren't abandoning the Lord. But they were overwhelmed with what stood before them. This was the temple of God, but it was not like it used to be. Their weeping in a loud voice was understandable. Not only was the temple different, but so much had happened in the life of this generation. And so maybe there was some joy mixed in with their response. The point is that they were overwhelmed with emotion. They cried out to the Lord. And one of the reasons that we have this on record as we wrap up this morning, as I was kind of joking with Adam, it's almost like a, a scene out of a movie. You see in this, in this gathered place where they're about to rebuild the temple, the, the temple construction site, you've got 50 plus thousand people who are, I would dare say, I'm just going to speculate, but I'm going to firmly speculate. It was louder than an LSU football game because there was much more to be excited about. And it said it was just this loud noise because people are shouting with a great shout and they're, they're weeping with this loud voice. So you almost see kind of in this movie, if you will, and the camera zooms back, right? Zooms back from the shouts of Israel. And in the last scene, you see the bad guys. You see their silhouette. And then it cuts off. Because as, as we start in chapter four, as Adam will be in next week, the adversaries of the Lord, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, they heard 
They heard the sound. They heard this loud noise. It was loud enough to set off the Richter scale, if you will. If there was one then. It's a very loud sound that sets us up into chapter 4. But my prayer this morning is that the may the echoes of Israel's joyful celebration and the resonant weeping for a glorious past may it inspire us to embrace God's present work and what He's doing in His people and what He has called us to do, holding fast to the promise that His love endures forever towards true Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this reminder of how we too can celebrate all that You have done all that you're doing and all that you will do. For you are good and your love endures forever. It is steadfast and it is sure. And you love your people and you've loved us in Christ. And we know there is no greater expression of love than Christ dying on the cross for us. So as we sing this morning, may we be reminded of that as we come to the Lord's table. May that be so present with us, his broken body and his poured out blood for his people, because you love us. Thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.